Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. We talk a lot about why UBI would help people today, but we don't talk as much about why UBI has become more important for people in the modern age than it has been in the past. There obviously is conversations about automation and what UBI might do in the future, but why is UBI more important today than it has been previously? And one of the ideas around that is that we actually have people living in far greater financial precarity than they have been in the past. People are struggling to bring home a steady paycheck. We no longer have the multi-decade careers that were much more common if you go back 20, 30, 40 years. So we decided we would take an episode and really dive in on how people's instability and risk has really increased over time. So I got to speak with someone who has thought about that quite a lot. Jacob Hacker is a professor of political science at Yale and author of a number of books, including The Great Risk Shift, the second volume of which just came out. So here's my conversation with Jacob Hacker. Jacob Hacker, welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Owen. So the second edition of your book, The Great Risk Shift, was just released. And this concept of The Great Risk Shift refers to the idea that Working class people used to have security around their healthcare, retirement, the general likelihood that they would remain employed, things like that. So how would you describe the state of precarity, or lack thereof, perhaps, of today's working class? Well, I think it's clear that Americans are feeling very insecure and they have good reason to feel that way. Um, you know, this is a long term trend. It, it predates the recession, but the Great Recession really made it much clearer to many Americans. And uh, it's uh, sometimes hard for us to to see it in its totality because it occurred across so many different areas, job security, you know, workplace benefits like health care and retirement pensions, um, issues of work family balance as, um, you know, Turner couples and single parent um, households have become more common. And um, also just this sort of general um, instability that people face when their wealth or, um, or, their, or their debt, um, it's like education debt, um, is really tied up with their chances of, e of getting economic opportunity. So what I, what I think the book is trying to do is to bring these various trends that we've looked at through different lenses together within this single perspective that looks at risk and then actually explain why it's happened and, and what might be done about it. Yeah, and I wanted to get into that a little bit. Because you have these threads that you, you weave together, would you say that there is a single cause or, or a sort of an overarching thread that you can point to? Um, that's causing all this risk? Not a single cause, but I think if you wanted to kind of sum it up in a two-part story, it would be part one, uh, our society and economy changes in dramatic ways that expose people to more risk. Uh, and, you know, we know about a lot of those changes, globalization, uh, digitalization, um, the change in the kind of outlook of corporations, the degree to which they're much more financially oriented and less committed to um, particular communities uh, and um, and the changes in the family, um, you know, the, the entrance of women in the labor force uh, over the last 50 years has really transformed the relationship between work and family. So you've got these big changes. And then our government, the federal government in particular, but also state governments in many places, uh, instead of responding in a constructive way, they've often been piling on more risks. So while, you know, while these trends are happening, you've got um, 
a lot of pressure to move towards individualized retirement savings plans like 401ks. You've, you've had until recently a huge erosion of, of private insurance without a big expansion of public coverage. Uh, and then um, you've seen very little response to the kind of new instabilities of the workplace and of work and family of the sort that you, you've seen in some other advanced industrial democracies. So we're the only country in the world, basically, only rich country in the world that doesn't have some kind of paid family medical leave. And we have one of the weakest systems of unemployment insurance, um, even as job instability is, has gotten much, much worse. Yeah, so we, we have these patches on on the various issues that we have. And you know, like you said, they're often pretty insufficient. How do you think a basic income would change the overall calculus here? Well, I do think it would. I mean, there's no question that um, having a kind of basic foundation of, of income and wealth um, would help a lot for people to deal with economic uh, instabilities. Uh, I think that you probably want to distinguish between the two sides of the um, of the insecurity picture. On the income side, that is the instability of family incomes due to um, work family issues and job instability, you know, having some kind of basic floor would, would make a big difference and, and would obviously reduce the kind of volatility that families, uh, the in- income volatility that families face. You know, my own research on this um, starting in the mid 2000s showed that there's been a big increase in, in family income volatility and that, it, um, that while it goes, you know, down during good economic times and up during bad economic times, um, that volatility on average has been rising since the 1960s. So, so I think that's where you would see the biggest effect. The expenditure side is trickier because, you know, the things that people are, are laying out big uh, outlays for, like um, education and healthcare, you know, have been growing much faster than income um, for the last generation. And I see that as an area where you'd have to do something quite distinct to really address the problem. I mean, some of it would be about bringing down those costs, um, certainly in healthcare, and some of it would be about figuring about out ways to help people finance those costs that wouldn't impose a lot of risk on them. But as you can see, the income volatility would be very directly addressed by a basic income, while the expenditure side, I think, would be a would require uh, quite a bit more uh, attention and, and action. And you just mentioned healthcare and education. Would you say those are the two biggies in terms of the, what's not going to be addressed by a dividend of, say, $1,000 a month per person? Yeah, I mean, I would also mention childcare, um, depending on how you, I mean, you don't have to provide, so, you know, there are lots of different ways in which you can provide people with um, with greater economic security. I'm, I'm a, you know, a supporter of, many forms of social insurance through public programs like Medicare and Social Security. But there are a variety of ways that you could um, provide risk protection. You know, for example, income contingent loans um, where, you know, if people are borrowing for education, they don't pay back the full loan. They pay back uh, if their incomes end up being lower, they, they pay back a percentage of income. So, those are those are the three big areas: childcare, education, and and healthcare. Um, you know, on the income front, I have I'm of two minds about a universal basic income, honestly. And I'm sure you've heard uh, these positions before. On the one hand, I'm a very strong believer in public supplements to income. If you look across rich countries, the ones that have dealt effectively with declining median wages or 
um, growing inequality are ones that have offered either in-kind or um, direct cash transfers um, to uh, to Americans, uh, particularly, uh, sorry, to citizens, particularly those of modest means. So on the one hand, I'm a big believer in that. And on the other, I just think that the domain of insurance um, is is distinct. And um, probably the kind of economic support that that's most useful in the, when you're talking about risk is wealth. That is to say, making sure that people have you know, a reasonable nest egg, the ability to kind of weather these economic shocks uh, partly on their own. But the most important thing is clearly that you have to have certain kinds of basic insurance protections. So and I don't think any um, anybody who advocates a basic income would deny that. Some of the advocates, and this is where I get to the sort of potential B in my bonnet, um, some of the advocates on the right think that you would substitute a universal basic income for like all of the other, a lot of these other things that government does. But the insurance role of government, I think, is is quite valuable and distinct. And you wouldn't want to uh, displace it. You'd want to supplement it. Yeah, no, I I think that there is that tension both within the movement and with people who are kind of curious about the idea of basic income that, you know, I think the idea of cash assistance makes a lot of sense to a lot of people, but we have these social programs that I think, you know, most people on the left see as irreplaceable and that should be increased and that there's this desire on the right to just simplify and liquidate everything essentially into cash. Well, it's, I think the problem that you often, oh, and I think the problem is, is that often the argument gets made on the right that really what we need to do is just provide a safety net. And these programs are providing, you know, too many benefits to people who are who are not poor. And and I think that just misunderstands what most, you know, what most of these insurance programs are trying to do. Like unemployment insurance isn't just about keeping people from falling into poverty, but also about providing them with um, with support during a period in which they they may need to upscale or um, or or sit out, in fact, a labor market downturn while um, jobs with the skill levels that they have are, are, are essentially unavailable. So that's that's my point is only that, you know, it's it's um, and retirement income protections. Well, I do think that you could see like a basic pension. We have something in that form and in, in, in something of that form in SS uh, in the supplemental security income program. Um, and many countries have a kind of basic pension. The idea that you also have this pension that you've sort of you, you see you've, that you've paid into over your working life is, I think, really important to Social Security's strength. So that's that's the point I'm making is that it's dangerous to go down a route in which the only criterion of success is are you providing people with enough income that they're not poor? And I think for the right, sometimes universal basic income is is basically viewed in those terms. Yeah, there, there's a, a lot I'd love to dive into there. You, you mentioned unemployment insurance, and I, I feel like that's that's one program that is easy to point to as one that was designed for a previous generation that, um, you know, is, assumes that you, you have periods of long employment that are then interrupted by, you know, a period of, say, a month to six months of unemployment, and that it's mostly there to get you through this brief period of instability, yeah. relatively brief, yeah. whereas... And now I think you know where I'm going. That we've we've got 
an economy where there's a lot of people in the gig economy who don't have one job or don't have one steady job or might not apply for for employment insur- insurance and also or unemployment insurance. I mean, but but also we have people who are more long term unemployed, and that's just that. Uh, we have a, a less stable situation in general on the on a population scale, and I'm wondering when you sort of evaluate programs like these, to what degree are we trying to, or you, you feel like we should attempt to restore what we've we've done in the past to make those institutions stronger, and to what degree they need to be updated? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean. In the book, um, I lay out a pretty specific um, agenda, and it involves both um, restoration in some cases and, and upgrading in others. I totally agree with what you say about unemployment insurance. In fact, in, you know, in the book, I say the whole you know set of assumptions behind unemployment insurance that what unemployment is is like a temporary interruption of of relatively um, stable employment at a single employer or, or within a single industry during economic downturns is is really belied by what's happened in the last two big downturns. Um, more and more what we're seeing is is more like skilled displacement where people are um, are falling very far down the economic ladder. And you're right, there's also this growing portion of the labor force that really isn't in stable employment in the first place. So, you know, there I think you 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 have a twofold response. One would be to apply unemployment insurance to the full range of jobs. And, I, I you know, I just think it's a huge issue that we basically have this bigger and bigger loophole that if you classify your workers as independent contractors, they ba- you basically don't have to do any of the labor market protections for them that you have to do for regular employees. So unemployment insurance should be a broader program. But at the same time, just providing people with cash benefits, as valuable as that is, isn't going to necessarily help them deal with some of the, the challenges they face today. Um, the two things that I write about in the in the discussion of unemployment insurance that seem to me to have promise are um, various forms of wage insurance where, you know, you're basically um, tr- you know, if you're going if you're falling down the skill ladder that you're provided with some uh, portion of your prior p- pay even if you take a job with lower lower pay and the other area that i'm really interested in is is various proposals for um either partial unemployment that is like when you have reductions in hours or if you lose clients if you're an independent contractor or subsidies for that go along with unemployment insurance for for skill development but but what i would say is i just think unemployment insurance can't be asked to bear the weight of a lot of these other challenges it it, you know, we should have it there because especially, as you say, for the long and long term unemployed, you know, they're just in really dire straits. And I'm not convinced yet that we're we're going to see the kind of mass displacement through, say, automation and technological change that some fear. But um, but I mean, I'm, I could be convinced otherwise. I'm definitely not someone who who's prone to great optimism about the progress of the American economy. But but right now, I think the that what we see is that even at times of relatively low unemployment, there are a lot of people outside the labor force that need to be brought in. And um, there are a lot of people who are just not paid enough. So those are the two big problems that I think really need to be tackled. And on the, the flip side of this, I feel like we, we also designed our social structure or social safety nets around the assumption of um, an employer that would kind of help you out <laughs> with your essential benefits. So namely healthcare and retirement 
And I'm wondering if um, if you see that as something that needs to be updated as well. That perhaps healthcare should be removed essentially from the employer, um, the purview of what employers are expected to provide, and and perhaps same with retirement. Um, and that we move toward a model of the government providing those assurances and the employer is just, you know, they, they give you money for in exchange for labor. Yeah, I think that's absolutely where we'll, we, we are going. And well, so what we're going to is a world in which basically employers aren't providing the benefits, but and nobody is, right? So we need to definitely figure out how to make these portable um, and have, they're going to almost inevitably, that's going to require a substantial uh, public sector role. I, you know, I've I've proposed a, a, um, a you know a Medicare expansion rather than Medicare for all, but that expansion basically has employers either providing insurance or enrolling their workers in Medicare, so they don't get a choice of not providing insurance. And um, and I think it'll probably move over time more in the direction of of Medicare as um, employers do what they've been doing over the past you know. 40 years, which is cut back on the provision of these benefits. And, you know, the only thing I would say here that I think ties in, you know, closely to the larger discussion of a universal basic income is that I just think that we, um, I like the way you put it, which is, you know, employers pay us cash. It's like, I think that we had probably, there was real reasons why employers in previous generations wanted to provide benefits. Um, and now those reasons are gone. They, they're, they're not necessarily trying to, um, you know, create long service workers or, or have people invest in highly firm specific skills. And so making them or trying to make them continue to do it um, is just a real mistake. Um, and instead, what we really should be doing is saying, OK, this is society benefits enormously when you have a you know full labor market labor force participation, it benefits enormously when people invest in skills. And so these should be public responsibilities that are shared in common. And, you know, I, I think that's the aspect of the basic income that, that I find most appealing is that it's saying, look, we're not we're not isolated, you know, uh, workers who are somehow producing everything that, you know, eating only what we kill, but actually we're in this complex web of interdependence because of modern economy requires uh, an enormous amount of regulation and investment, and we almost everything we produce is produced through social cooperation. And so, you know, we as a society should be providing the kind of basic foundation of income and security for everyone that um, that we might have once thought employers would provide. Yeah, if you expect an employee to be around for multiple decades, it makes sense to invest in their skills and their health and their you know ability to retire comfortably. And the framing I find myself leaning toward around basic income these days is that it's a, sort of a communal investment in, in all of us, that if you invest in people, you will see a return on that investment. Well, those are the questions I had for you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think I would just say that I think that the most interesting conversations that are taking place in politics today are ones uh, are ones that are where people are thinking creatively about the way in which markets and democracy, you know, capitalism and uh, democracy interact. And I encourage those conversations, even when I don't always agree with um, the exact directions that they go. It, it seems like for too long um, we've kind of accepted as a, as a given 
that our economy is going to produce um, not just rampant inequality, but a huge amount of insecurity. And I just don't think that's the case. Like we are a very affluent nation. Um, we know that there are better approaches to these problems that we see either at the state level, in our past, or in other countries. And I just feel like our we've had a kind of abdication uh, of our of our leadership in particular from the responsibility to to do ongoing problem solving around the challenges we face as society. And obviously not all of them are economic, but I think a big chunk of them are. So I commend you for having this conversation and, you know, just think that all of us should approach it with without the kind of preconceptions that we that we once might have brought to the conversation because. Uh, right now, I feel like there's just a real openness, particularly among progressives, for thinking more broadly about um, how you make markets and democracy work. That was Owen speaking with Yale professor Jacob Hacker. So one thing that stood out to me was when thinking about what has, what has caused greater risk for employees today, what has led to greater precarity, it's not one thing. That it's actually been multiple shifts in society that have led to the place we are today. And that seems important because when thinking about how we address it, if it were just one thing, I, I think that there's a stronger argument for like, well, let's change that thing. But because there's multiple factors at play, that, that becomes a lot harder. And so it's a reason to, maybe not instead of, but at least in addition to thinking about how, how do we address those specific things, to really focus more on how do, you, how do you come at it from the other side? How do you provide people with that fundamental resilience, that financial security, that gives them more ability to deal with this greater risk, these greater challenges that they're dealing with uh, through their job today. Yeah, and that's one of the big appeals to me of UBI, is that you don't really have to, to guess what's going to go wrong with people's lives. You don't have to do that kind of whack-a-mole. You can just provide security up front in the form of cash, and that covers most of it. I think uh, Jacob Hacker did uh, make a good case that cash doesn't cover everything. And I think healthcare is is the big one when we think about that. If you need surgery, that's going to cost a whole lot more than what your UBI is going to cover. And so, you know, I, I think universal healthcare is often seen as a very large necessary complement to uh, the sort of society that we envision when we think about what we want with UBI. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that healthcare being probably the most obvious example, but I also thought he made a good point about, or a cautionary note about why, again, if UBI is talking about replacing all programs, that runs you into trouble. And I, the thing that particularly stood out to me there is the recognition that our social programs today are about more than just eliminating absolute poverty. That is not just about getting people to just that like level right above the poverty line. It's, it's about ideally empowering people to, to be able to, to thrive and, and seeing that manifest in different ways. And so when, when we do talk about the idea of, of UBI's replacement and say, oh, well, everyone's out of poverty, why wouldn't we replace everything? I think that's the piece that, that really gets overlooked is that these, these additional things that, that are being done, maybe not always terribly effectively, but our programs are designed to be accomplishing. Yeah, I found him sort of more goal-oriented than, than I often am. When I think about social programs, I th think, you know, we institute UBI and all these good things happen, whereas he's a bit more, 
we have these problems, we have these gaps in our social safety net and in what employers provide. And so here are programs that fill in these gaps and that uplift people in various more specific ways than, than you might think about with UBI. And I think that sort of details the perspective, the difference in perspectives through which we think about these issues. I think he has kind of got what I think of as a sort of status quo, at least among Democrats and maybe among the, the US generally, that jobs are there to do most of the work in taking care of people. You know, income employment obviously is still the biggest source of income for the population. And it's hard to imagine a world where that's not the case. And that's, we should just kind of think about the gaps there. Whereas I'm thinking a bit more bottom up that obviously jobs aren't going anywhere anytime soon, but they are less reliable and that we should count on them for less and ensure a greater level of security regardless of what your employment situation is. Right, I really do think that there's a spectrum really of how much people see our existing system persisting and that, that being the way of, that we deal with the challenges we face versus the more bottom-up UBI, how much of our problems that's solving. And so I think you have extremes here, like complete status quo, let's just keep doing what we're doing, which I think both of us strongly disagree with. On the other extreme, the idea like, oh, just give everyone some cash, it'll be fine, which I think I feel like there's certain areas where you're going to end up having unintended consequences, that, that would be problematic as well. But I, I do think there's that room in the middle of, okay, well, how much, how much do we believe that a UBI is actually going to solve versus how much do we need to either persist or at least try persisting with existing systems and, and see what ends up being redundant versus what is actually necessary in addition to that income floor that we're providing people. Yeah, and I think politically that's where the UBI conversation runs into a lot of resistance, particularly with unions, I would say, with the, the labor world generally. When you start talking about a post-employment society, they're like, whoa, 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 employment's our whole deal. Um, and it's the, the mechanism through which we've, we've fought for rights and you know, the, built the middle class. And, and they're, they're not wrong, at least historically. But, but you know, at the same time, times are changing. Um, employment has changed and it will continue to. And I find myself unwilling to place too heavy a bet on how much we can count on employers to generally take care of the population going forward, even though, I don't know, but, but I, I'm not sure where in the middle of that spectrum I end up, but I'm somewhere in the middle. All right, that'll do it for this episode. For those of you who are interested in learning more about this particular topic, Professor Hacker's book, The Great Risk Shift, actually just came out with a second edition, so you can buy that online and find out more about his perspective on that. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davison. If you like what you hear, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the service of your choice. And please do tell your friends. We're always looking for more listeners. We'll talk to you next time.